Amen. Don't you just love those baptisms? Love seeing people making a public declaration of the gospel and what God's done in their life. And it just reminded me of a story. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once had a young minister come to him who was a little bit upset about the fact that uh, they weren't having many baptisms in their church. And Charles Spurgeon said to him, well, you don't expect somebody to get saved every week, do you? And the young man said, well, I guess not. And uh, Charles Spurgeon said, well, that's your problem. We need to have an expectation. He said, you know what, my hope is we're going to get to a point that we're having baptisms every single week because people are getting born again. Amen. Well, we've been in this series of messages entitled Jesus the Miracle Worker where we're looking at the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, just so you know, I have a couple of goals for this series. My first goal is the same goal I have every time that I preach, and that is that you would know Jesus more and love him more after this series than you did at the beginning. Right, I mean, Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? That you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so every time we preach here, I want to help you in the greatest commandment. I want you leaving saying, I love Jesus more than I did when I walked in. And if you're a visitor here, I don't care if you know my name or not when you leave. I want you to know the name of Jesus. And if you leave saying, I love Jesus more, then that's a success. And one of the ways to know Jesus more and love him more is to know his miracles. Because that's part of the miracles that he did and that he does today is part of who he is. It reveals something of who he is. And so my first goal is that you love Jesus more than you, than you do before. But my second goal is even beyond that. It's to raise our level of expectation. That we would get so thoroughly uh, baptized in the scripture that we would believe what the Bible says is true, not what our experience says is true. Because there's a lot of us who've prayed for a lot of things over the years and maybe something hasn't happened right and we get disappointed. And if we're not careful, we allow disappointment to shape our theology instead of the word of God. And so part of the goal is to stay in the scriptures so that that this affects how we even pray. It gets to the very bottom of how we even pray. My hope is that I, I, I pray like I've never been disappointed. Because my, my faith comes from not from myself or my own experience, but what the scripture says. So today, we're going to go to a different story. This is a story that's dear to my heart because I see myself in it. It's a story about a dad. A man who loved his son, but evil had attacked his son and twisted him into something he wasn't. And so this man, he goes to Jesus, and initially he's thinking there's going to be a battle between Jesus and this spirit of evil, and eventually Jesus does deliver his son. But before that happens, Jesus, who is always going deeper with us than we thought he would when we first went to him, Jesus not only delivers his son, he ministers to the dad. And look, here's what I know. I know there's some parents here today who have a broken heart for your kids, or maybe you're concerned about your kids, or you're worrying about your kids, or maybe it's been a long time. Maybe they've been away from the Lord, or maybe they're fighting an illness, or I don't know what it is. And I know that there's some stuff in your heart right now. And if that's you, I want you to listen very closely because the Lord has a word for you today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. I'll start reading the text, and we're going to go through this story and just kind of stop and and expound upon it as we go. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. 
Now, stop right there and, and, and get the picture. Jesus has just been on the mountain of transfiguration, okay, where the glory of God was revealed. The, the veil of the flesh is pulled back. The glory of God's revealed. He, is, he appears in dazzling white. The text says, whiter than anybody could have ever bleached them on earth. His, his clothes are dazzling white. Moses and Elijah appear beside him. Peter says, because the text says he didn't know what else to say, and I kind of get that. What do you say to that? Uh, he says, uh, here, let's build some shelters, one, you know, three, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and, and because God's presence was manifested there. And listen, when you're in a place where God's presence is manifested, you want to stay right there. So I don't blame Peter. Let's, let's stay right here. I mean, and that's not the end. A cloud, the text says, a cloud enveloped them. The voice of the Father said, this is my son. Listen to him. That's a pretty good worship service. I mean, what if that happened today? I mean, a cloud came and a voice, Almighty God, the Father spoke and said, this is my son, listen to That'd be a pretty good service. You'd probably go at home saying, we had church today. And that's what happened. It was a good day. They were experiencing the presence of God, but now... Jesus has to leave the mountain of, of spiritual ecstasy. He's got to go to the valley where people actually live. Because that's where the warfare is. And that's where evil attacks. See, you can't follow Jesus and stay where you are at the same time. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't just stay up on the mountain. Yes, you can have the great service and the great worship and the, and the high experiences. You can do that. But you're going to have to go from there, from the mountain, down to where people live. And let me just tell you, when you get down there, it's messy out there. And evil attacks. Verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. And they ran to greet him. Now, just stop right there. I find this fascinating. Jesus, there was something about Jesus that was just so attractive. It says they saw Jesus, and they're just <laughs> over because people want to be around him. The text says that he was a friend of sinners. They, people wanted to hang out with him. They ran to him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. Now stop right there. Wait a second. He, he said, I brought you my son. But actually he didn't bring the son to Jesus, did he? He brought him to Jesus' disciples. And Jesus doesn't correct him say, oh, no, no, you didn't bring him to me. You brought him to my disciples. Here's the point. The disciples were supposed to reflect Jesus. They were supposed to represent Jesus. So he says, I brought my son to you. Now, this would be a good reminder for us. Listen, when we leave here today, we're not representing ourselves. We're representing Jesus to the world. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, again, don't read this too quickly. Imagine this. Imagine this. The spirit has robbed him of speech. It seizes him, throws him to the ground. He's foaming at the mouth, gnashing, his, and he's rigid. What kind of a being would do that to a child? What, what kind of diabolical being would do that to somebody? 
I, I don't know about you, but very few things anger me more than seeing a, 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 a kid getting hurt. D does anything just rile up your anger more than seeing a, somebody being abused? And yet this is what happened. How in the world? Who would do it? Well, according to the Bible, there is such a thing as demons. I know this is not popular in our postmodern world, but it, according to the Bible, there is such a thing. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, this is not the first, second, or third time. This is the fourth time Jesus has encountered a demonized person. Now, this text makes a lot of people very uncomfortable because contemporary people often don't believe there's demons. And if you ask them, why don't you believe there's demons? They say, well, it's kind of primitive, you know, to believe in demons. We used to believe in demons when we didn't understand how the world worked and how complex the world was. And we didn't know about diseases. We didn't know about mental illnesses. We didn't know about epilepsy. We didn't understand that. So we attributed all of that to demons because back in Bible times, they were simplistic and naive. Not like us in the 21st century who got it all together. In fact, in the 20th century, there was a thinker, his name was Rudolf Bultmann, and um, he fancied himself as a biblical scholar, but he said we have to demythologize the Bible. This is what he said. We have to take the myth out. And so he had this famous sentence where he says, we who use electric lights cannot believe in demons. I don't really feel the weight of that argument. I didn't. He's saying we're quite literally enlightened. And those people in the first century, they didn't know things like that. You know what? It, it, you don't have to turn there. I'll put it up here on the screen. But Matthew 4, verse 24 says this. People brought Jesus, all those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now notice this. Matthew differentiates between the diseased and the demonized. They knew that not everybody who had a disease had a demon. And in fact, he has a separate category for those who have seizures. And in fact, if you have one of the older translations, like the original King James Version, 1611 edition, it, it doesn't say those who had seizures. It actually says the word lunatics, which in our world is kind of a pejorative, not kind of, it is a pejorative word. Don't call anybody a lunatic, okay? Don't leave, anybody, don't leave here and call anybody a lunatic. But the word originally meant those suffering insanity or irrational behavior or seizures. And that's why the NIV just says seizures. In other words, the first century people, they weren't naive. They understood the difference between having a disease and having a demon. They understood the difference between having seizures and having a demon. See, the Bible says that there is a supernatural, personal evil in the world, and that explains a lot of the evil that we see that cannot be explained merely by human choices. W.H. Auden was a famous a poet of the last century, and during World War II, right towards the beginning of World War II, he, he moved for a little while to New York City, and he was in Yorkville, which I guess is the Upper East Side of New York City, and he was in a place which was predominantly, predominantly a German neighborhood. And so on one occasion, I think it was the end of 1939, beginning of 1940, he went to a movie in this German neighborhood. And the movie was a movie that was a Nazi propaganda film that was defending the German, the, the Polish, uh, the invasion of Poland by Germany and the Nazis. And he watched shocked 
as some of his friends, some of his neighbors that he knew. I mean, the guy who was like the baker down the street, the guy who was the milkman, you know. He, he knew these people to be good guys. They were his friends. They were his neighbors. They were good people. But when the Polish person came up on the screen, they stood up and they shook their fists and they said, kill them. And Auden was so shaken. He says he lost his faith in atheism. When he had gone to the film, he had been a convinced atheist, but he said after he saw the film and he saw the response to the film, he realized he didn't have anything in his belief system that, account, that could account for what he was seeing. And he said, number one, you know, if there's no God, if we're just a product of the strong eating the weak, you know, if this is just, you know, the survival of the fittest, then he had no basis of saying that his morality was any better than the Nazis. I mean, if this is all an accident, if there is no God and we're just here on accident, then who's to say that our morality is better than the Nazis? But beyond that, the other thing was he realized that unless he had a belief in God and sin and evil, that he had no explanation for the evil he saw. I mean, how else do you account for other people who are relatively good guys? They're neighbors, you know, they take care of their family, they take care of their friends, and all of a sudden they're wanting genocide. How do you explain that? Listen, it is impossible to account for all of the evil and wickedness that people do in the world and attribute it all to human factors. You, you can't just say, well, you know, people make bad choices. There's family nurture. It's not so good. There's inequitable distribution of resources. Okay, but that doesn't account for all of the evil that we see in the world. See, if, if you think you can solve all of the evil in the world by just getting ourselves together and getting our minds together and getting everyone educated and getting best practices and getting our technology together, and then we will deal with evil, you're going to be sorely disappointed, maybe even shocked. And one of the things that happens when you read the gospel of Mark is that you realize you cannot overcome evil apart from God. Because there's more going on in the world than what you can see right now. There's more going on in the world than just human choices. To paraphrase Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. <laughs> in other words, there's more going on than what you can see right now. You can't attribute everything merely to human mistakes and choices. There is an evil in the world that does not sleep. So if you don't believe in a supernatural, personal evil, number one, you don't believe the Bible, but number two, you've probably lived a pretty sheltered life. And what I mean by that is if you think you can explain all of the evil in the world just by bad decisions, you probably haven't seen a whole lot of the real world. So what do we do? We keep reading in the text. Verse 18. This is the Father speaking here. I ask your disciples to drive out the Spirit... But they could not. So here's a father here whose heart is broken for his son. I mean, his son is possessed by an evil spirit, and this father is doing what any of us fathers would do. He is desperately trying to find help for his son. Now, just imagine, just, just be this guy. I mean, we aren't told his name, and you know that if you're reading along in the Gospels and you come along a faceless person, that is, they don't have a name, that is the author's invitation for you to put your face there. You be in the story, and you encounter Jesus. So be this dad. What would that be like to watch your son go through this? Those of you who have kids, imagine this is your son or your daughter. Some of you don't even have to imagine. 
Actually, if you're a parent, you, you probably don't have to imagine. You've probably been in the situation we have when our, one of our kids was sick or something was going on, and they're looking to us, Mom, Dad, do something, you know. And there's nothing you can do at the moment, and you're just feeling powerless or hopeless or helpless. That's probably how this dad feels, pretty helpless. And I wonder if there's somebody here right now that, that you're a parent, and that's what you're feeling right now. When you walked in today, you were feeling a little bit helpless. Maybe you're not a parent. Maybe you're, you're someone here who just finds yourself in an impossible situation, and you feel helpless. Let me just ask you a question. How, how many people, don't, you don't have to raise your hand. How many people here have felt you were in an impossible situation? Are you there now? Well, this dad felt that way. We can relate to him, can't we? I can. Verse 19. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus. Now stop right there. It wasn't when the boy saw Jesus. It was the spirit who saw Jesus. It immediately threw him, threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Now just stop right there for a second. Why did he ask that? I mean, why, why stop and say, how long has he been this way? I mean, is he, is he trying to kind of test the water? You know, is this a big demon or a little demon? Is this, you know, is this a hell's angel demon or is this just a Sunday school demon? Is this one of those demons that gets in the sound system and the lighting system? <laughs> and if you don't believe there's a lighting and sound AV demon, you've never been a pastor. I'll tell you that right there. <laughs> I mean, what? No, that's not why he's asking the question. Because we're going to find out in a moment, this, this story is not even about the demon. Do you hear Jesus' compassion? Oh, how long has he been that way? See, it's, it, it, for G, this isn't about his ministry. This isn't about getting another notch in his exorcism belt. He cares about this boy. He cares about his father. Just like he cares about you. How long has he been this way? From childhood, he answered. Now, just stop right there. I, this is like the third time in my life that I've pray, preached on this text. And so I probably read it, I'm, I don't know, a hundred times maybe. I don't think I'm exaggerating. Maybe I am. But a, a bunch of times. And every time I've ever read this, in my imagination, in my mind, the son is a little boy. I don't know. How many people, when, when I read it, that's what you heard, was a, what you saw was a little boy? Okay, okay. You know, the text doesn't say that. It says it was his son. And then when he says, how long has he been this? He says, from childhood. I mean, if he is just a child, you wouldn't say from childhood because he's still a child. Which makes me think maybe this is the father of an adult child. I think maybe there's some parents here who, who are parents of adult children and your heart is broken for them right now. And I want you to hear, Jesus knows about that. Jesus knows about that. 
And you know what happens? I think sometimes, I think when the warfare goes on, when there's protracted warfare, there brings a weariness of soul. You start to get tired. You, you start to feel hope slipping away. You're praying for him. You're praying for him. You're praying for him. But, 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 but there's a temptation to give up. How long has he been this way? From childhood. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Now, let me just stop right there and just say, listen, this ain't no game. This demon's not playing around with this boy, this son, who I, whatever, however old he is. He wants to kill him. The text says right there, it has thrown him in the fire or the water to kill him. The scripture says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, don't read that too quickly. Notice what happened here. Notice what happened. When he originally came to the disciples, he apparently had some amount of faith. I mean, that his boy could be helped because he had enough faith to actually come to the disciples. But now, after he's engaged the disciples of Jesus, he's not sure he has any faith at all. At one time, he believed, and now he's not so sure. And so he says, if you can do anything. It's just the opposite of what the leper said. If you went back in, in Mark chapter 1, the leper goes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. But this father asked not if Jesus is willing. He asked if he's able. If you can, I don't even know if you can do anything. You ever been there? Come on, don't get religious on me. You ever experienced that? Where you had faith at one time, but now some of Jesus' disciples let you down, and now you're not so sure. Listen, this is one of the reasons why your faith should never be pinned on a human being. Any human being, I don't care if it's Pastor Carol, it, it, any being at all except Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that can carry that weight. If you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. And look at Jesus' reply, verse 23. If you can. You almost hear Jesus go, excuse me? If? If I can? Everything is possible for him who believes. Let that in for just a second here. All of a sudden, what's happening here? The onus is back on the Father's faith, not on Jesus' ability. See, Jesus is saying, it's not about whether or not I can do it, because I can do it, okay? There ain't no comparison between me and this demon. The question is, can you believe it? Everything is possible for him who believes. And let me just be crystal clear about something. When Jesus turns it back on the Father, he's not shaming the Father. That, that's what Satan does. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the adversary. He's the one who reminds you of all the times you screwed up. So when you're laying in bed in the dark and you start remembering your past and remembering things you messed up in the past, let me just be clear with something. That ain't Jesus. If you've repented and turned away and it's under the blood of Jesus and you get reminded of those things, that is our adversary. So this is, Jesus is not here rebuking him. This is not a rebuke. This is a refocus. See, the battle in this story is not between Jesus and the demon. It's not between the father and the demon. It's not between the son and the demon. The battle was against unbelief. It wasn't even in the son. It was in the father. The battle was within him. Would he believe or not? Or would he allow his disappointment to paralyze him? 
See, you guys, we have a choice. When we're walking with Jesus as disciples of Jesus, something doesn't go your way. You have a choice. You can allow that disappointment to paralyze you, or you can say everything is possible for him who believes. And that's what happens here. The battle wasn't out there. It's in here. It's not us versus the devil. See, according to this story, and hear me clearly, and before you run off and misinterpret what I'm about to say, let me just hear me out here. Demons in this story are real, but irrelevant. Now, here's what I mean. I don't mean that they're not dangerous and that, you know, let's all play around with demons. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is this. The demon is not the issue in the story. The demon is not the center of the story. And the devil is not the center of your kid's story either. Or yours. Jesus is the center of the story. And the question is whether or not we can believe what Jesus says. Jesus isn't scared of this demon. Jesus is not even impressed with the demon. In fact, it's almost comical when you read it. See, sometimes we, we get so religious when we're reading Scripture, we don't actually just read it at face value, right? And so just get, it's almost comical because Jesus basically ignores the demon. Did you notice? The demon you know, starts convulsing this, the, this son on the ground, and he's squirming around, and, and he doesn't even go, oh, no, look at that. Jesus goes, how long has he been this way? Just basically ignoring the demon because in this story, the deliverance is almost an afterthought. It's not even the point of the story. Let me tell you something, you guys. Same is true in our story. Satan is already defeated. He's already defeated. Hear the word of the Lord, Colossians 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. The devil's defeated. 1 John 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews 2, verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, in case you're wondering, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I could keep going on. Here's the point. Satan is already defeated. The question is not the devil's power. The question is not Jesus' power. The question is, do we believe Jesus? Everything is possible for him who believes. The battle's not out there. It's in here. Because listen, you guys, and, and I know this goes without saying, but Jesus is greater than any demon. Jesus is greater than any scheme of Satan. Jesus is greater than depression. Jesus is greater than drug addiction. Jesus is greater than disappointments. He's greater than discouragement. He's greater than divorce. He's greater than a broken heart. He's greater than the wounds in your past. You name it, you fill in the blanks. I don't care what it is. The mighty name of Jesus is greater. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love this. <laughs> this father is so real. I mean, I, mean, he, I, I have been in the place of the father right here. I, not that my sons are demonized. Just, uh, just that, that, that I've been in a place where I go, I do believe. Where I read this, vo this verse that everything is possible to him who believes. And there's been times when I've said, yes, God, I do believe. And I also have some unbelief. Help me. 
Because what the Father is saying, look, I'm a walking contradiction right now. I do believe, and at the same time, I'm wrestling against unbelief. I have faith and doubt in me at the same time, and I need your help. And did you notice? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He asks Jesus for help. He's just real. You know what? Some of God's best friends over the years have learned that this is one of the secrets to intimacy with God, being real. Because, listen, God won't have a relationship with the fake you. He only has a relationship with the real you because God only has relationships with real people. God doesn't heal the fake you because the fake you doesn't exist. God can only heal the real. It's like, use this analogy, you can't fix a mirage. Why? Because you're a bad mechanic? No, because it doesn't exist. It's not real. And until you get real with God, he won't fix you. Because God doesn't fix imaginary people. He heals real people. And so the Father is just real with Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. I can't do it on my own, Jesus. I need your help. And I bet, I'll just go on a limb here. I think there's people like this guy here today. And you would say, I do believe. I do, and it's real, and it's authentic, and I do believe. And there's some unbelief in there too. Help me. See, what this father did was allow Jesus' words to spark hope inside of him. I mean, in one time, right before then, he's being shaped by his circumstances. He's being shaped by the demon. He's being shaped by the failure of the disciples. He's being shaped by his disappointment. And in the next moment, he's being shaped by the words of Jesus. Which brings me to this question, what shapes you? What determines how you think? What, what determines how you live? What shapes your worldview? Because often we're, we're just shaped by our experiences, aren't we? I mean, that's kind of natural, you know, that you allow your experiences to shape you. But if you allow your experience to define what is possible for you, you will forever be limited by your past. Why? Because your experience will determine what you believe is possible. The Scottish biblical scholar William Barclay put it this way. Commenting on this text, he said, to approach anything in the spirit of hopelessness is to make it hopeless. To approach anything in the spirit of faith is to make it a possibility. Most of us are cursed with a sense of the impossible, and that is precisely why miracles do not happen. In other words, what shapes us? What shapes you? I hope it's the words of Jesus. I hope it's not the words of the enemy. Because, you know, the enemy of our souls is constantly lying to us. It's trying to get us to believe lies. You remember last week I had that quote from William Perkins, you know, from R.T. Kendall's book where he said, don't believe the devil even when he tells the truth. Because he's lying to you. The enemy constantly lies. He wants you to have his thoughts. I thought the... YWAM School of Ministry Development this week, and it was in all my years of teaching, it was one of my uh, just, just, I just had probably the most fun I've ever had teaching this week. It was great. And I told, I told a story that I've told here before, and I looked it up. I tried to find the last time I told this story, and it's been four years ago, so I feel like uh, statute of limitations is up. I can tell it again. 
So if you've been around here for more than four years, you've heard the story, okay? But I can't think of a better one to illustrate this whole idea of having the devil's thoughts. Mavis said do it, so I'm going to do it. So like 19 years ago, almost 20 years ago or so, I had taken over as senior pastor. And uh, right after, uh, that we were having some issues here, and, and it, was, it was kind of a tough situation. And I'm driving home. Uh, from the office, and I'm just I'm just feeling down, and I'm I'm hearing these thoughts like you 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 can't do this, you're gonna have to resign, this isn't gonna work, you know, and, and these th- these tapes start playing. So we get to I get to our house, I walk into the kitchen, and I think Marlene and I are alone, which was my first mistake. Because <laughs> when you have four little boys, this was 19 years ago, you're never alone. Um. So I walk into the kitchen, Marlene's cooking, you know, she's cutting up stuff and she's making dinner and, uh, and she says, how are you doing? And I'm like, I just said, I don't know if I can do this. And she said to me, because my wife can be very compassionate and tender and she can be very firm. <laughs> it's one of her gifts. It, 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 because we have four sons, you have to be that way, okay? So, um, so she looks at me while she's, and, and she just says, well, that doesn't sound like God. And right after she says that, we hear a voice from behind the refrigerator, which says, if it's not from God, it's from the devil. And out from behind the refrigerator jumps our six-year-old little boy, Nathaniel, and he looks me right in the face. He takes his finger, points it right at my nose and goes, you got the devil's thoughts. Now, here's the deal. I wish every time you had the devil's thoughts, a six-year-old jumped out and laughed in your face. But you know what the truth is? You know what the truth is? Sometimes we do get the devil's thoughts. Sometimes we do. And we need somebody to correct us. That that doesn't sound like God to me. Listen, sometimes Satan lies to us about our kids, about ourselves, and about our God. And you say, well... How do I know if it's the devil's thoughts? Well, pretty simple. One is, is, you know, step number one is, is it in the word? Here's the second way you'll know. If it's hopeless, it's probably not from God. See, this father heard Jesus say, everything is possible for him who believe, and he began to believe. Amen. Amen. And look, and at that point, he didn't have the devil's thoughts. He had Jesus' words. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of exorcisms that happened, right? And and we know from even today, we have a number of ancient texts actually about exorcism, especially in Egypt and uh, in other places. Um, And so most, actually, every single example of an exorcism we have from the ancient Near East, the person always called on a higher power. They would say something like this, I adjure you by the living God. Or if they were in Egypt, it was raw. Right? If they were, you know, a Canaanite, they, 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 they called upon the Canaanite storm god, which was Baal. And we have a lot of texts of these people trying to cast out demons by the name of a higher power. But Jesus doesn't do that. Actually, Jesus alone in the history of the world does not call on a higher power. Because he is the higher power. He is the higher power. 
and he deals with the demon the same way. Remember last week we talked about there was a mega windstorm and Jesus just spoke and said, be quiet. And that's what he does here. And by the way, it, you don't have time to read the whole book of Mark in this one service, but if you did go back to Mark chapter 5, it's interesting to note, Jesus deals with one demon the same way he deals with thousands of demons. Because in chapter 5, we got, a, we got a dude that says, when Jesus says, what's your name? It, it says, legion for we are many. And a, a Roman legion was somewhere between two and 6,000 people. But Jesus doesn't go, whoa, I got a lot of demons. Woo, I better have to work out, stretch a little bit before. No. He just says the word. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't call on a higher power. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't negotiate with the demon. There's no contest. There's no struggle. There's no wrestling. Jesus is Lord, and the demon has no choice but to obey. Verse 26, the spirit shrieked. And for those of us who have actually been in deliverance sessions, you, you know what that is like. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus. Don't you love those words? See, it doesn't matter what comes before those words, because when you get to those two words, but Jesus, it changes everything that comes after it. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. See, it wasn't enough for Jesus that he cast the demon out. He wanted to give him life, abundant life, life to the full. He wanted to stand up straight into completion and wholeness. And listen, you guys, I have just enough audacity to believe that the same Jesus that was alive 2,000 years ago lives today and wants the same thing for you. Abundant life. Look at the last verses. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately. And can't you just imagine, this is what I would do too. You know, if I'm embarrassed, I try to cast this demon out, nothing happened. I'm going to wait till it's just me and Jesus. And none of y'all are there. <laughs> okay. What happened? Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And, and some other manuscripts say prayer and fasting. Now here's what I take from that, you guys, that, that there are some problems in life. There are some attacks of the evil one. There are some attacks on our children that are not sprints. They're marathons. They're not even marathons. They are Ironman triathlons. And it's going to take ongoing prayer, ongoing fasting. And, and you keep on going, and you don't give up, and you keep on praying. You don't ever give up, and you believe everything is possible to him who believes. And when you feel like giving up, you say that to yourself. Everything is possible for him who believes. And when you have trouble believing that, here's what you do. You say, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he'll treat you just like he did this father. 